1: Hello everybody and welcome to the Functional Medicine Radio Show, the only internet radio show dedicated to giving you real solutions to improve your health. Not only are they real solutions, but they're natural solutions as well. Because as you know, the one and only true wealth you have is your health. I'm your host, Dr. Carrie Drisga, the Functional Medicine Doc, and I'm committed to helping you find the root cause of your health problem, fix the cause with natural treatments, so you can feel normal again and live your life to the fullest. I'm so very excited about today's show because our special guest is Dr. Peter Osborne. Let me tell you a little bit about him. Dr. Osborne is the clinical director of Origins Healthcare in Sugar Land, Texas. He is a doctor of pastoral science, board certified in chiropractic medicine, and a diplomate of the American Clinical Board of Nutrition. In practice since 2001, Dr. Osborne's clinical focus is the holistic natural treatment of chronic degenerative diseases with a primary focus on gluten sensitivity and food allergies. He founded Gluten-Free Society in 2010 to help educate patients and physicians on the far-reaching effects of gluten sensitivity. He is the author of Glutenology, a series of, digital visit, a series of digital videos and eBooks designed to help educate the world about gluten. Dr. Osborne, thank you so much for being my special guest today on this episode of the Functional Medicine Radio Show.
2: Well, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: Now, I'm so excited to have you on the show today to talk about gluten and grains because it's such a hot topic in the world of functional medicine, natural medicine, and so I get these questions all the time from patients. So can we just start out talking about, you know, thinking grains have been a real staple in our diet for so many years, but... Why does it seem like just now that grains are becoming a problem?
2: I, I think it, it's really a matter of perception and a matter of, of, uh, of it being more in the public eye. I don't, I don't think grains were never not a problem. If we explore history of cereal, you know, we've got, generally speaking, cereal was brand new around 1850. So prior to that, there really wasn't any such thing as cereal I mean people would use grains but they wouldn't use them in the mass quantities as a staple food that we use them today and it wasn't until Post and Kellogg actually created um, commercialized available cereal that we actually started to see the rise in GI health conditions and this has all been very well documented. I, I talk about it in depth in my book but you know in 18, in 18, uh, late 1800s um, when, when, when commercialization of cereal began because the equipment was designed to mass-produce and mass-process cereal. We saw, uh, and and there are several doctors that have, have documented a report in the increase in digestive disorders all the way up through 1943 when the United States government stepped in and banned the sale of processed cereal unless the fortification of that cereal was done first. And a lot of people don't realize that history about uh, behind cereal. They've just been told and marketed to that it's the healthiest thing in the world, and you can't survive without grain. But the reality is, is that so many people died prior 1943 that the government founded enough of a health crisis to ban the sale of processed grain without adding fortified nutrients. That's actually where our food fortification program came from. So when you look at a loaf of bread or a box of cereal and you see that it's fortified with vitamin B1 and niacin and iron and folate, it's because prior that prior that time, these these cereals were actually responsible for causing vitamin and mineral deficiency diseases to the point of death. And probably the most 2 well studied were berry, berry and pellagra, respectively, um berry is a deficiency of vitamin B1 and Pellagra's a deficiency in vitamin B three. So I think a lot of it is 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 awareness today that wasn't it didn't exist prior because we've just been so heavily marketed to and we've been told by commercialization that that cereals are a staple of the diet how many times have you watched a commercial on TV where you've you've said you you've heard somebody say eat your grain uh because it's a balanced part of this meal or it's a balanced part of your of your diet and we've just heard that message so redundantly and so repetitively that it's become true even though it's never been true
1: like brainwashing Very much <laughs> So I think you're totally right about that it is just a perception and that with the advent of, uh, especially the internet, you know, more people are sharing more and more of their stories and more, more of this information is getting out there. And, and that's why it seems to be like something new, but it's really not. Okay, so you had mentioned uh, your book. So your new book is called No Grain, No Pain. And it talks about how grains can cause pain and inflammation and specifically things like mold and mycotoxins. So can you elaborate on that?
2: Yeah, so I mean, we talk about grain, and, and so many people have heard the term gluten. And so very, you know, it's a, it's a household word at this point. So many people are familiar with it. But But the detriment of grain goes far deeper than the protein gluten. And one of the dangers is mold and mycotoxin. As grains are being stored for processing, they're stored in large bins, and, uh, and they're doused with chemical sprays. And what, what ultimately happens is a lot of these grains grow heavy levels of mold, aspergillus and other forms of mold species. And the side effect of this is, one, many people have mold allergy and mold problems. So when they eat grains as a whole, uh, they're being exposed to mold toxins that can create an inflammatory response or a hyperinflammatory response that leads to pain. And in many cases, it also is a trigger for autoimmune diseases like rheumatoid arthritis and lupus and other forms of autoimmunity. So, it, it you know, we talk about gluten a lot, and that really has really taken the stage. But mycotoxins and mold are part of this issue, and other elements of grain that, that are detrimental beyond that, um, pesticides. Uh, and those, and that's why I think you asked the first question was why are we seeing so much of this now? I think a big reason, too, is, is, is we're using a lot more pesticides when we grow our grains than we used to. So glyphosate and atrazine, these pesticides, are known to be gut disruptors and cause leaky gut and gut dysfunction. But then on top of, the, on top of even the pesticides, some of the grains contain heavy metals. Some of the grains contain other compounds and proteins that inhibit digestion. So it's, it's really, if we think about what is grain... And why does it create so many problems for so many people? One, I think it's the quantity. People are eating more than they ever have. And so they're being exposed to more of these different grain-based toxins than they ever have been. And it's accumulative. So the more they have, of the toxins they get exposed to over time, the more that tears their body down and tears their gut down. Um, but I also think that, that these pesticides, especially in the last 30 years, again, that's, that's been a major, major factor. So people are eating more we're also, we are also seeing genetic hybridization of grain and genetic manipulation of grain. So going back to what is grain? Grain is the seed of grass. That's, that's the definition of what a grain is. So, so grass grows, it sprouts a seed, the seed falls to the earth and grows new grass. Well, if we look at the function of a grass seed, it's not to be eaten, and Mother Nature, in God's grand scheme, is not, not to have this seed as a staple for predators. It's, The seed is the vesicle to support the continuation of the life cycle of the grass. And so seeds are not animate. They can't get up and run away from predators. They have to have some ability to defend themselves from predation. And so some of this ability is actually biochemical warfare. So grains are known to contain chemicals that can shut down human digestion. One of those chemicals is called an ATI, an amylase trypsin inhibitor. It shuts down the pancreas. Some of these chemicals are called gluten. Some of these chemicals are called lectins. And so what people have done is they've taken a food that's, that's got the capacity to defend itself from our GI tracts, and they've made it their main source of food in their diet. And so their GI tracts, over time, are just breaking down. And they're ending up with all different forms of gastrointestinal disease that then subsequently turns into systemic disease. Because when you break the gut, you know, the rest of the body can start to break down because when the gut becomes permeable... Chemicals and toxins from the food that we eat on a regular basis out now have access to our bloodstream, and that that gives them access to our brain, our liver, our joints, our thyroid gland, our other internal organs. And so we get systemic inflammatory problems.
1: So you mentioned a bunch of great stuff there. You mentioned about just in general the sheer quantity. We're eating a lot more just in quantity of grains and then also the quality as far as our grains have pesticides, there's molds, there's mycotoxins. Even if you get quote organic grains, they still have molds and mycotoxins, and heavy metals. And heavy metals.
2: Heavy cadmium and mercury and uh, and arsenic are very very common in corn and rice, which are oftentimes used as gluten free substitutes. Um, you know, for people who are going on a gluten free diet.
1: And so this can be one of the main reasons why people who go on a gluten free diet. They don't feel any different.
2: Yeah, and what, and what we've seen in the research is that 92% of people who are diagnosed with a gluten disorder do not respond by going traditionally gluten-free, meaning going wheat, barley, and rye-free. They don't respond. They, they feel better, but when we measure their inflammation and we measure their autoimmune disease uh, through antibodies and other, and other forms, they don't respond because the underlying disease continues to be persistent. And when we cut, there are studies that have been that have been done where where we put them on on what's called a non processed diet. Basically, we take away all forms of processed grain, including corn, rice, and sorghum, and oats. And we find that those people that aren't responding, those ninety two percent that have persistent inflammation, we find that that goes away, and uh, and that they make a recovery.
1: And so I wanted to kind of uh, go back to something you said earlier about, uh, you know, fundamentally grains are seeds for grasses. And so I know we have listeners out there that are, you know, kind of thinking, okay, does, are, does this then include other kinds of seeds like pumpkin seeds or flax seeds or chia seeds? It,
2: it does in this sense. Um, I'm not saying that all seeds are horrible I'm saying that we have to be aware that the purpose of a seed is not to be our food, not, not in the grand scheme of, of, of their design. Maybe, maybe we want to eat them as food, but, but again, they have a design to protect themselves. So there are ways to prepare seeds, uh, ways to cook them that dismantle some of their ability to defend themselves. For example, um, you've, I'm sure you've heard of soaking and sprouting which a lot of cultures do, and one of the reasons why is because they, over time, their wisdom has shown that when they soak, sprout, and ferment, that they pre-digest these seeds and that it's a lot easier on their own digestive systems and their own digestive tracts. My warning to people who, are, who have chronic autoimmune disease is, to, is a big part of, of the protocol I write about in the book is that you need to be seed-free for a time, and that, that doesn't necessarily mean forever, But you need to be seed-free for a time because most people with these issues and that have active disease, their gut's completely broken. And if we're putting in seeds as a staple food in their diet and their gut's already broken and these seeds are harsh on the gut, even if the gut weren't broken, we're setting the stage for them not being able to make a full recovery. So at first we might be a little bit more restrictive in the diet, but later down the road, you know, seeds in moderation, but also seeds that are properly prepared and properly, um, properly handled before consumption, and that includes legumes like beans. So, so you know, they're they're a form of seed, and most people don't think of them that way, but I would put legume in that classification as well. So navy beans or pinto beans or black eyed peas, etc.
1: Okay, so I know now that other listeners are thinking, well, my God, what the heck am I going to eat, right? So I think, <laughs> I, I think, it's, I
2: think what's, what's important to, to disclose is that food in and of itself, when you're sick, again, this, this, the book is not written for somebody who's in the best health. The book is written for somebody who's struggling with a, any form of autoimmune disease who doesn't know what to do and medicine has completely failed them. And so again we have to restrict the diet more than we would in an average healthy person. Does that make sense? So so we have to be we have to do that because we've got to allow for the gut to repair itself so that it becomes capable of processing food and digesting food again and that we heal and seal the gut. So, you know, if they have an intestinal hyperpermeability or a leaky gut, we've got to be able to overcome that. So, so you know, the person that's paralyzed thinking in their mind, what do I eat? Well, there are more than 300 options of food choices that you have. Most people don't eat a variety. They only think they eat a variety. For example, cereal or, or grain in and of itself can be compressed into bread, can, can be pressed into pastas and pancakes and waffles and granola bars and all these things that are perceived as variety, but you're actually eating the same thing just mashed into a different shape or form. That's not variety. What is true variety Is All of the availability of produce that we have at our discretion, the vegetables, the fruits, the different forms of meat, there are over 300 different options that you have as a person. It's just that you have to get educated and you have to find recipes and you have to find foods that are palatable that you like. And Part of this is, is going on a journey. Part of this is saying, I care enough about myself and enough to recover from this disease to implement this type of strategy and to rediscover food and to rediscover variety. One of the easiest things or easiest ways to get variety is to join a co-op, but join a farmer's market so that when you go and you do your vegetable and fruit shopping, you're getting what is seasonally available and and you're getting what is locally grown. And this way you avoid a lot of the pesticides and you um and you get food that actually tastes good. Because when you buy food that's in season that's locally grown, generally it's it's got it's more flavorful, it it's um It's not going to be imported from, you know, 5,000 miles away and and been sprayed with other chemicals and anti-ripeners. So it's going to have a better flavor. It's going to have a better taste. It's going to be more palatable. But a lot of people, you know, I use this example. Have you ever eaten a peach that was really, really hard and not very sweet? Of course. Yeah. And so... In doing that, you wouldn't write off peaches for the rest of your life and say, "I just don't like peaches." You, especially if you'd had a peach that was in season that, that melted in your mouth and just was absolutely delicious. And so, so many people, when they're exposed to vegetables, they're eating them out of season or they're eating them. Um, they're eating them that are they're not properly cared for, grown in the right soil. And so, like an onion might be extremely hot, or uh, arugula might taste extremely hot or extremely bitter because because where they're buying them, or the kind that they're buying, uh, doesn't—it's it, it, not seasonal. If that makes sense. So when they when they get something that actually tastes good, they realize, oh, I do like this particular vegetable. I just ate it out of season. I ate it when it wasn't properly ripened, or when it wasn't grown in the right type of soil, or when it wasn't sprayed with chemicals or anti-ripeners, etc. So you actually rediscover food as you go through this type of process, and you realize just how much variety you can have in your diet. So at first it might seem paralyzing only because your perception of what is variety has been skewed because what you've been eating um, isn't really different. It's just, it's just molded into different shapes.
1: Thank you so much for answering that question because I think for a lot of people, they do kind of get into a paralysis situation and, and like I know, from my clinical standpoint, that the, absolutely this is going to change their life. But but the patient themselves, they just feel like trapped and they, they don't know what to do. And, and so in your answer, you gave so many uh, clinical pearls. And so for the listeners out there, you know, to have hope that this is not something that's uh, not doable. There's a lot of options out there and just using... Um, as, as you said, your local farmer's market, your local food co-ops, using the Internet to find groups and recipes, and it is a journey. Just as you said, Dr. Osborne, is a journey.
2: Yeah, it absolutely is, and I think, I think going into it with the right attitude helps. One of the things that, that I put in the book, I was very adamant about having it in there, were, were recipes. We put in 31 recipes so that you had a recipe every day of the longest month of the year that you could tackle. And, uh, and they're from my own kitchen, so they're not, they're not recipes. You know, some people pull recipes from other people. These are actually tried-and-true recipes. My wife is, you know, she's not a chef. She very much could be. She's an excellent cook, and these are straight from my kitchen, and they're, they're just fabulous meals.
1: Oh, fantastic. Okay, so let's get back to talking about the book. So one of the concepts you detail is about the prescription pain trap. So can you elaborate on this?
2: I think this is one of the biggest health problems in the world. Um, pain is the number one reason people see their doctor. And when, when I talk about pain, I, I'm, I'm you know, a lot of people will perceive that as physical pain, like my elbow hurts or my joint hurts or my muscles hurt. There are many forms of pain. As you know, there's emotional pain because you're sick and you don't know why. There's hormone pain because your hormones have been disrupted and that's creating other symptoms and other problems. So there there are multiple forms of pain, but, but pain as a whole, if we look at pain medications, they're responsible, properly prescribed, they're responsible for killing over 35,000 people a year. And that is an alarming statistic. Uh, it's so bad here in the U.S. The CDC director came out a few months ago and said, and I'm going to to paraquote him. Not, this isn't a direct quote, but this is a paraphrased quote. He said that we know of no other kind of medication that fails to address the origin of a person's problem but also kills people with such a frequent degree. And so they put out a very, very stringent warning for doctors to reevaluate why they might be prescribing pain medications. So, so one aspect of the prescription pain trap is that the drugs themselves can be life-threatening. But one of the other aspects to it is if you take a person who's in pain and you chemically mask or or, or block their pain, you're not solving why that pain is there in the first place. You're masking it, and, and, and you're masking it under the guise of compassion. So you're saying, as a doctor, I want to get you out of pain. And so with compassion, here's this medication that I'm going to give you. But that compassion is actually, in my opinion, the opposite. It's the worst thing you could do because you're setting a person up for a a mindset that that says, okay, my problem is resolved. My pain is gone. And so what you're doing is you're saying, hey, we're masking your problem and we're allowing it to insidiously continue to destroy you from an underlying perspective because you no longer feel pain. You no longer are looking for why the pain is there. And so you continue to ignore why it's there. And that's the trap is now you become addicted or you become dependent upon a medication And some of the side effects long-term, aside from death, which to me is extremely alarming, but let's look at some of the other side effects of general pain medication. Take, for example, even some of the -the over-the-counter pain remedies like aspirin or ibuprofen or naproxen and even some of the other what are are classified as non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, the NSAIDs, which a lot of people get prescribed, like Celebrex. These drugs have been shown to rip a hole in the gut lining. And a big part of where pain is coming from and stemming from is that there's already a hole in the gut lining allowing for chemicals from our food to leak into our joints and create an inflammatory process. And so these drugs long-term, they erode the mucosal barrier within our GI tract causing bleeding and intestinal permeability, which is, again, is a precursor to this type of pain. But the other aspect to some of these drugs is that they actually inhibit vitamins and minerals. So, for example, aspirin and ibuprofen block vitamin C and folate and zinc and iron and understand that those four nutrients are necessary in order for a person to heal from inflammation. If you don't have vitamin C, so vitamin C is a natural anti-inflammatory. It's how our adrenal glands produce cortisol to fight and battle inflammation on a day-to-day basis. If we're taking a drug that inhibits inflammation but blocks vitamin C, which is necessary for our body's natural defense mechanisms, Five years from now, we're going to end up with a much worse problem because of that long-term term drug-induced nutritional deficiency. And that's just, that's just one example with NSAIDs. And you have steroids that block vitamin D and calcium and magnesium and increase bone loss and can cause something called osteonecrosis, which is death of the bone and death of the joint. So then you have other kinds of classes of medications which inhibit things like glutathione, which is what the liver uses to detoxify environmental chemicals and toxins. So when you're going on these long-term pain medications and inducing not only these secondary side effects, but inducing vitamin and mineral deficiencies that long-term cause other diseases and other forms of inflammation, you're not coming to any kind of resolution. So you get stuck in that trap. And the only way out of that trap is to figure out where the underlying inflammation was coming from in the first place.
1: Absolutely. So you covered a lot of Uh, Very important things there that these uh, painkillers, even the so-called, you know, we think of them as safe, uh, over-the-counter, Tylenol, Ibuprofen, Aspirin, can still create major problems in your body without you even knowing in it and perpetuating this pain cycle, perpetuating leaky gut, perpetuating vitamin and mineral and nutrient imbalances, and just then the whole inflammation cycle.
2: Absolutely, and that, that in and of itself is a no-win scenario for anyone who's on them, and that's why um, if you look at outcomes, so, you know, oftentimes doctors cite studies. They say, well, these people who took this medication for this problem had this much relief, and the end result of the study is that they're measuring a, a pain scale response. They're, they're asking these people, did your pain go from a, you know, from a, from a 5 to a 3, right, you know, on a pain scale? Um, but that's not resolution. That's, That's symptomatic, subjective outcome, and we want an underlying objective chemical outcome that's right for the patient at the end of the day. That's what our job is. It's not to mask the problem. It's to find out why the problem is there, and it's to ameliorate or address that impact.
1: Dr. Osborne, there are so many other questions that I want to ask you, but we're starting to run low on time, so is there anything else we haven't talked about yet that you think is important for our listeners to know?
2: I think if your listeners walk away with anything, and I'm sure you've, you, you've done a thorough job of educating them already, but I, I would say from my perspective, if you walk away with any one pearl from this, from this interview, it's, it's very simply this. Food is a drug, and you can choose the wrong foods that have a drug-like impact that lead to chronic disease, or you can choose the right foods that have the ability to give you anti-inflammatory power and to protect you from disease. And so when you make those choices, those are the biggest control points you have in your own life. That's where you have power over disease is through your food choice. So make it wisely. If you're, if you're not thinking about the importance of selecting your food the way you might select a potential partner in life or a potential spouse, Right, you select with, uh, you select being very, very cautious and going into that relationship um, with a lot of things on your mind. You should be thinking along the same way when you're selecting your food. If you're looking at meats, for example, you should be looking for free range, pasture raised, organic, wild caught. You should and when you're looking at your vegetables, you should be looking for locally grown, organic, fresh. Right, you should be selecting excellent ingredients to fuel your body because it's the one point that you have control over the destiny of your health and if you're not using that power then somebody somewhere along the line when you do get sick is going to medicate you and that won't be a solution and it's only going to lead to future problems for you and disappointment.
1: So listeners, Dr. Osborne's new book is called No Grain, No Pain. Dr. Osborne, how can our listeners find out more about you and where can they get a copy of your book?
2: They can buy the book at any major uh, any major chain. They can go on Amazon and buy the book. They can also visit our website. If they want to pick up a couple hundred dollars in coupons and bonuses, they can go to NoGrainNoPainBook.com and we've got some really nice bonus giveaways for for people who do pick a copy of the book up. And if they want to learn more about, about my office and my services, they can go to drpeterosborne.com. That's D-R-Peter Osborne, O-S-B-O-R-N-E dot com. And they can learn about our clinic and learn more about our, um, our functional medicine mission.
1: So listeners, I'll make sure to have all of those links in the podcast notes so that you can easily find uh, No Grain, No Pain book and Dr. Osborne's website. Dr. Osborne, thank you so much for being my special guest today. This has been an awesome interview.
2: Well, thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it, and I I appreciate you having me on.
1: All right, that wraps up this very special episode of the Functional Medicine Radio Show with Dr. Peter Osborne. And I want to thank you, our listeners, for tuning in today. And I'd like to invite you back next week for another episode of the Functional Medicine Radio Show. As always, I'm your host, Dr. Kerry Drizga, the Functional Medicine Doc. Have a great week, everyone.
0: You've been listening to the Functional Medicine Radio Show with your host, Dr. Kerry Drizga, known internationally as the Functional Medicine Doc.